Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for more awesome and amazing, spectacular podcasting on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Welcome to the show, folks. This week, we are going to talk about something that has actually been related to cult behavior and extremism in many, many ways. It's been talked about. I've been asked questions about it. I've certainly uh, seen examples of this from time to time of extremism in this, in this particular zone or area. And yet it's a very, very hot topic item and something worth discussing because it's um, something relevant to the structure and, and makeup of our society here in, the, in Western culture. And that has to, that, this is, of course, the, the subject of intersectionality. This is a term that was actually coined back in 1989 around with us for a while as a concept. Uh, of course, it comes from academia, and it is the theory here. I'm just reading the definition out loud here. It is the theory that the overlap of various social identities, such as race, gender, sexuality, and class, to name a couple, contributes to the specific type of systemic oppression and discrimination experienced by an individual. And of course, that could also apply to groups as well. And on that note, we're going to go, we're going to take this apart, talk about this in, in all kinds of different ways. So don't strain your brain too much over that definition quite yet. In order to not, you know, necessarily just sit here and pontificate on my opinions about this, I thought I would bring on a professional, somebody I have had before in the area of sociology. His name is Mark Horowitz. He is a um, professor of sociology. And um, Mark, welcome to the show. I'm delighted to be here again, Chris. Thank you. Yes, thank you. I'm always, uh, we always have the best conversations, I swear, even when yes, we're indeed. like, you know, you rat bastard, how do you not understand where I'm coming from? Productive disagreements. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we have better disagreements than that. <laughs> um, and, and you are, and for remind my listeners and viewers here for, you've been on here before, um, you are what exactly? Yeah, I'm an associate professor of sociology at Seton Hall University, which is in uh, South Orange, New Jersey. And uh, I teach in the areas of social theory, social psychology, uh, increasingly in biosociology, as well as uh, social movements. Excellent. So this is a concept then that you are professionally familiar with. Sure. Yeah, I come out of a background of critical theory. It's not exactly the same as intersectional theory or critical race theory, as it's called, but there's a substantial enough overlap to where I feel reasonably confident and competent in sort of describing what I see as its kind of core ideas. Excellent. Well, that's what I want to talk about first, because before we talk about the pros and cons of the thing, and I think there are pros and cons to this topic, um, I first want to be really super clear about what it is we're talking about, because this has been used and misused as a term over and over and over again. And of course, it's become an ideological conversation as well. Um, so the propensity for bad faith arguments and criticism and straw man arguments is just, it's all over the internet on this subject. So first, let's be clear about what we're actually talking about. Could you please describe, uh, maybe as you would to your students or as, as you understand it in, the, in, in broad terms, what is intersectionality and what's, what's it all about? Sure. I mean, your definition was a good approximation. It'd be close to how I would define it. I would say that 
one of the things that makes it difficult is that I think it's two things at once, at least. It's both a way of trying to understand and explain the world and how people experience the world. And that's important. There's a kind of phenomenology at the heart of it, like what it means to be a marginalized individual at the intersection of all these different marginalized identities. So uh, that's part of it. I think that's its central intellectual or empirical contribution. It is also another thing, though. It's also a moral and political orientation to changing the world. So therefore, it tends to trigger and invite deep passion and commitment to making the world a better place. And for people who share those values, they're going to find intersectionality ideas quite congenial. For those who aren't necessarily comfortable with the kind of militants that characterizes it, many um, uh, people who identify as intersectional, critical race theorists, they're going to be uneasy with it. So going back to the point you just made, Chris, all over the internet, you're going to find generally more moderate to conservative voices that are deeply critical of it, probably don't go beyond the surface level, are more interested in scoring, in scoring points with their audiences regarding to, to just dismiss it than they are to sort of understand the kernels of insight that could be gained from it. So I think it's important to separate the intellectual side of it, which I, I in full disclosure, I'm of a mixed mind myself. I find it useful and helpful in some ways, although I, I consider it fairly straightforward. And maybe, I'm sure there are going to be some people who watch your show, who are informed by this, who may feel my point of view is a little too simplistic, um, but I support it. Uh, and then the moral political agenda, I also support, but I think it has significant dangers. And I'd like to, maybe if we get a chance later in the talk, I could bring in some of my own research on that and why I feel there's problems from a scientific point of view. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm very interested in. I want to go exactly in those directions with this. Um, first, of course, I have to, you know, get the elephant out of the room for some of my audience members who might be watching this and saying, oh, here's two white guys talking about intersectionality. Great. You know, I don't cotton to that. It's sort of an ad hominem approach to to argument making. Right. If my claims are off, uh, if you know, if marks are off, if we're saying things that are un that are factually untrue or are basing our reasoning on something that is factually untrue fair enough, correct us, comment on it, you know, tell me where I'm off. But to simply dismiss a conversation between, you know, two people because the color of their skin that, by the way, neither one of us had any choice in at all. <laughs> Nobody asked us when we were born, hey, you want to be white? You know, it's just, it's not any more of a choice than it is to be anything else. So, um, so I want to kind of get that just little snippy thing that people do kind of addressed and out of the way early on here because um mark is a professional socio sociologist and so he definitely comes at this from a professional point of view all right that all being said <laughs> and I, I do have comments on that because you're actually i think you're making a profound please. and important point yes oh please. okay yeah no you're actually hitting at something that i'll probably un we'll unpack a little later in the conversation something quite divisive for many people at the heart of intersectionality theory. Um, and again, it speaks to this idea that there's something empirical about it that's true, and yet the political side takes increasingly problematic forms. So from an empirical point of view, it's likely that people who actually experience disadvantage, discrimination, even oppression, are simply going to be in a better position to sort of be able to understand it. So there's this idea of a kind of, it's kind of a fancy sounding phrase, but like an epistemic privilege I know that sounds fancy, but you're in a you're in a positionality because you're, say, a, a black female trans person. Uh, you're going to be able to experience those kinds of modes of oppression better or more accurately than someone who never experienced it and is only trying to sensitize themselves to it. So that's reasonable. That makes sense. High degree of plausibility. When we get to the political and activist side, though, 
what we have is because people are so deeply committed to these values and the concern they have for those marginalized identities, there's a tendency for some, and you just hit on it in your comment, Chris, that, well, if you are part of this dominant group, well, then you by definition don't, first of all, can't understand. Sometimes you'll hear something like, it's a black thing you wouldn't understand, you know, that old expression. Uh, and, and I have to say in full disclosure, this rubs me the wrong way pretty profoundly. I come out of a left, progressive, class-based, broad coalition kind of political orientation, my background, my social justice work, my union work. Uh, so I, I have some significant problems with identity politics. So to the extent that that insight that's true about the sort of epistemic privilege of marginalized groups morphs into a kind of exclusion of particular identities, particularly privileged identities or perceived privileged identities. One of the things that, and I, I'm sympathetic with some voices on the right who say this, there's a lot of lower class white men, they don't feel any white privilege in society. And they get frustrated when they're told that they're part of some kind of white supremacist power structure by critical race theorists, for example, right? So the divisiveness at the heart of it is a problem, I think. And, and it, ironically, it even undercuts the capacity of the movement, I would argue, to be successful in addressing some of these deep divisions in society that they want to address. So you were actually raising, believe it or not, a kind of Pandora's box with your rather simple, you know, your rather simple point actually has a lot of depth to it. I, I, I agreed. And so many things to say. First off, of course, I understand that I will never, ever, ever walk in the shoes of a black man or a trans woman or, or, or. Uh, right. That absolutely is understood. I will at the same time say that very few of my audience members will ever walk in the shoes of what it's like to be a Scientologist or a C organization member. I think that we can look at our own identity as a in, in, in whatever majority figure or minority figure and we can tend to exclude the importance of other identities that also exist within other people uh whether you know i'm a cis white male so in terms of those things i am in this majority position and privileged position and i fully acknowledge and recognize that as a former scientologist and former Sea Org member trying to communicate about what it's like to be in a destructive cult. And that is a culture, that is a world that you live in. Uh, I find it difficult to communicate to people. So I, and get them to truly understand what that experience is like. So if that can't be a parallel, if that can't be a bridge building tool to use to show that there can be understanding on two sides of very different experiences and, and, and cultures and identity and educations and identities, then I don't think conversation's possible at all. We have to we have to find some kind of common ground we can build on. And I think we have to look to, you know, the best analogies we can create within our experiences to do that, you know, and I think when that is automatically naysayed, and you'll never get it, you'll never understand, you just can't, that is exclusionary. That's that's like, well, you know, you're just you're just never gonna get in my headspace and you never can and you never will. And and actually there's something wrong with you because of that. And that that's where I kind of go, mm, I, you know, I want I'm, I'm trying to help here. Can I help? Or is everything I'm doing just automatically bad because of factors that are no no more under my control than your minority factors are under yours? You know, it's kind of kind of how I approach that. So 
again, that all being said, since we have to sort of erect all these little, little things <laughs> to head off, you know, at least some of the arguments that come this general direction when you bring up this topic at all. It's such a hot topic and, and understandably so. It's so related to people's identity and therefore their sense of self. And so when you start attacking it or, or criticizing it, then they feel personally attacked. We've all been there, you know, so I get I get where that comes from. Um, OK, so what is so kind of where did this whole thing come from? I, got, I was a little surprised to find it actually dated back to being the, the term intersectionality was coined in 1989. Um, it has obviously developed as a field. It's become an ideological movement. What can you speak to about that history? Well, there's it certainly has historical antecedents. If you go back in time, it wasn't like we don't have famous people in the past who talked about their experiences as slaves and as women. And, um, certain social movements anticipated these ideas in the 60s. Um, I think Crenshaw's contribution was just to sort of coin it and formalize it. Um, it's, it has become a bona fide paradigm, if you would, within sociology. And a little bit later, uh, when we get to some of my research, I, I, I have a useful question that I asked um, um, sociologists, I asked them about what paradigms they adhere to, and I have a sample of sociologists who actually specifically identify as intersectional, so I can use that to sort of explain where they come from. So it's both, again, I have to say, within sociology, it's people who are interested in studying the multiple axes of oppression, as they call it. So you're looking at how lived experience of people from particular backgrounds has a kind of unique reality, and this is something that is important to stress. Um, and it, I, I'll use Crenshaw herself because she gives an example that's fairly famous about uh, African-American women at General Motors who, who filed a lawsuit because they were being laid off and the company defended itself and the courts agreed. So the, the African-American women lost. The company defended itself by saying, well, listen, we're not racist. We have black factory workers and we're not sexist. We have white secretaries. So if you only treat race and gender as separate discrete phenomena, you lose sight of the fact that it, it's not just additive. It's not just that a black woman has race and gender, you just one plus one. It's that it's this qualitatively unique kind of experience, a kind of interactive effect. And that is what I think um, intersectional theorists are trying to highlight. And then when you add other identities, these other intersections, you're going to have lived experiences that are quite challenging and that ultimately help reproduce the social hierarchies that we see in society. So there's a core wisdom and insight right at the heart of it that I think is useful methodologically, useful scientifically, and people who work within that paradigm do, I, think I would say, more often qualitative work, uh, which I think is, could be somewhat problematic because the method side, showing this quantitatively can be tough showing how these things intersect and lead to you know, diverse life outcomes among particular groups. Um, so that's, that's a quite useful thing. The political side of it's totally different question. Okay, let's clarify one thing real fast because yeah. you, are, you are speaking you know, professionally here. Um, you say qualitative versus quantitative there. Can you clarify what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, so, so qualitative tends to refer to texts or narratives or stories, um, quantitative, obviously refers to numbers and quantitative methodologies try to make predictions, usually with larger samples. Qualitative researchers tend to, just for practical reality, deal with case studies that are smaller in scope. Um, so what you have in a lot of people who do intersectional research, they'll have a small sample of people who discuss, I mentioned that fancy term phenomenology earlier, you know, people talk about 
their life experience. They, they share their stories. And qualitative researchers will look for patterns among these groups. And they also try to describe often rather subtle mechanisms that can unfold in people's lives that can lead to disadvantage. I think that's why there's some overlap um, with intersectionality and the attention in recent years to so-called microaggressions and the experiences of vulnerable groups when they're policed in various ways in their discourse or marginalized in, their, in, in interaction with each other. So what I was suggesting there is that a lot of the work within what I've seen at least, I, I'm a critical theorist in my background. I suggested a little bit of a disclaimer and said I haven't dived headlong into critical race theory, but when I see it and when I do turn to it, it tends very, very often to be small sample based, often deeply theoretical, kind of elusive. I got to be honest with you. The categories are very fluid. They're different. They're difficult to get a handle on. Um, doesn't this and I have, thing, I have some problem with that. Yeah. Do, yeah. Doesn't this make this kind of thing hard to, how do you, how do you categorize this kind of study as a science? Isn't science supposed to be I mean, we always think of, of quantitative, and I would never, for example, suppose that I was contributing to a scientific endeavor by telling anecdotal stories on my channel here, for example, and interviewing former members of Scientology. I would never, you know, uh, presume to say I'm doing scientific research. I'm, I'm simply helping people with, with their testimonials so that they can, you know, relieve some of their stress and experience some catharsis. And that's, that's the goal of, of what I'm trying to do. And of course, expose the kind of abusive behavior that goes on. But, but this kind of thing can be used in a, in a scientific venture or? or... It, it's, it's, it's interesting that you're posing that because I think there's an overlap also among intersectional theorists and a kind of move to even undermine the sort of scientific aspirations. There's a tendency in uh, science and technology studies, I, I'm sure those groups overlap as well, where this idea that science is just another discourse of power. So there's a deep skepticism of the role of scientists within society, even arriving at anything called truth. So they'll harken back to how old claims made by scientists were just justifications to maintain the social political hierarchies and racial hierarchies in society. Now, I'm, in full disclosure- Oh I'm, my God, that sounds I'm, like I'm, the worst slippery slope I've ever heard of. Yeah, so yeah, I'm uncomfortable with it. And I, I come out of a, even though, of course, I, you'd, you'd agree that there, when you look at the history of humanity, scientists are not independent of that. And if we, there's been certainly examples, you'll see many from the 19th century, 18th century, of, oh, of know, course, phren phrenology and, right. you know, uh, eugenics and all these sorts of arguments that have no scientific credibility. The defense I usually make when I encounter people with a kind of anti science view is to say, do we believe that anymore and why? And they were like, it's within the conversation of science where we're constantly holding ideas to be tested, having to subject them to scrutiny uh, that we actually do. It's not perfect. There's fits and starts. I mean, it's not this wonderful linear process of enlightenment, but the notion that we haven't progressed toward greater approximations of the truth over time, I think is absurd. And so to the extent that I've encountered uh, in my travels as sociologists over many years and many conferences discussing these ideas and taking a position that's pretty critical of identity politics, I've encountered this kind of... Um, if not resistance, a bristling at what they would see as kind of scientific pretensions that mask relationships of power in society. And that's not where I am. Even though I come out of a critical theory standpoint, it's not where I am now. Interesting. Okay, yeah. Well, I certainly would have uh, probably end up having some rather heated debates with such individuals myself if, if I was going to get into conversations about that. Because, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you find a mechanism you can use to invalidate anything that you don't agree with, um, that's not science. That's bias. There, there's, there's a very, very big, huge, wide chasms of difference between these two things. 
And it, it can be worse than that. It can be that there's not in principle any way to test some of the claims. Right. I mean, one of the, one of the core categories um, is white supremacy and in critical race theory and in intersectionality. And I, I've probed this. I mean, of course, there's on average differences in access to socially valued resources by race, right? On yes. average, if you're a white person, you're going to have more access to, say, property and power and prestige in society. But there's tons and tons of white people that are marginalized. And then there's increasing numbers of people of different racial ethnic groups that have more privilege. So, and yet that term gets bandied about as if it's sort of a taken for granted kind of reality out there that I think needs a kind of deproblemization. Um, but one of the things, going back to the political side, and this is why we, this is the way this conversation, I don't want to get it off the rails. We have to shift from the empirical usefulness versus the kind of moral passion. And on the moral passion side of it, people are shamed to even bring up or begin to question, you know, well, if you're questioning white supremacy, you're obviously not kind of awoke to the realities of it. You have to check your privilege. Uh, yeah, you're... the whole woke thing is a bit much. Because um, well, is... I've, had co I've had colleagues tell me. Um, I remember having a discussion. I mean, to cut you off, but yeah. I remember uh, um, even fairly recently, because I've been doing these rather controversial surveys. I briefly alluded to the last time I was on your show, um, and so I, I remember one of the comments I had made, which I consider uncontroversial: the idea that homosexuality is biological. And uh, and this colleague said, "Well, that's easy for you to say as a cisgendered." white male. And it's these kind of movements where you're, you're sort of exempt from the ability to make claims about the world because of your identity. The identity, right. uh, the identity assumed to be one that confers all this privilege on you. Now, I'm obviously am relatively privileged as an academic in the Western world, but I grew up working class. I, you know, I don't, I don't mean to play a violin, but I lived on ramen noodles in college. I made lots of sacrifices financially, never had a lot of money because of the choices I made. I don't regret it. But my point being that, you know, privilege is relative and having these sort of all-encompassing concepts like white supremacy that are supposed to be leaking into every sinew of every society and every social interaction. And if you were dare to suggest otherwise, or at least raise questions to how we empirically measure it, you're kind of shamed. That's, that can be a problem. And I've encountered that as well in my academic travels. Yeah, exactly. Well, this is, this is where it becomes, uh, it, starts, it starts moving over into the field of, of pseudoscience. And I don't want to, I'm not making some broad claim that intersectionality as a whole subject and process is, is pseudoscience. I'm not saying that at all. We both have agreed uh, from the get-go, and in case it's not clear, we have both agreed that it is a valid topic of research based mm -hmm. on easily observable phenomena that exist in society at an individual and, so and social level. So there's no effort made by either one of these white guys to say this isn't a subject we're talking about, and it's not an unreality that these things exist, that there are uh, prejudices and biases against certain types of people based on their identity or social status or whatever. That all being said, <laughs> you know, when these, you know, we're, we're kind of bopping back and forth between the purity of this right. topic versus all the horrible consequences that have come over decades of idealizing or, you know, making ideologuing this, this whole thing. So we're, so we're sort of bouncing back and forth, and I wanted to sort of follow the train a little bit more like a train, I guess. And But it's difficult with this because it's, it's kind of at once um, when, you, when you hear how it can go off the rails or in certain directions that it goes, it's, it becomes annoying, even, you know, like what? Outrageous in itself. Um, and I wanted to focus in on the science aspect of it first because I wanted to see, you know, at what point do we start losing scientific legitimacy with this topic? You know, sociology is based on a lot of empirical watching. There's quantitative work in terms of statistics and surveys and 
population analysis. But beyond that, that's about as far as I think the numbers go. Then you start, you know, taking anecdotal evidence and, and comparing notes. Like you mentioned, you get lots and lots and lots of anecdotes, but they're smaller sample sizes, you know, 30 anecdotes. And let me, let me add to that. It's, yeah. it's not, the phrase pushback's too strong, but just I would respond to your earlier point about, and you probably didn't mean it this way, yeah. that like, well, only quantitative is science and qualitative can't be science. I don't think oh, yeah, that. no, didn't mean no, that. I know you didn't mean yeah, that, yeah. No. But, but, but the notion of having small samples having stories and life stories there's a there's a time-honored you know tradition within social science i again i mentioned this idea of phenomenology lived experience and it is a different kind of method the, the great social theorist max weber talked about for Stein, which is understanding the mindsets of particular groups um you know that is valuable and it's different if it's done systematically and carefully i think it it has elements that certainly give it some degree of scientific legitimacy now there's going to be people and the quantitative camp who will still sort of dismiss that They'll, they won't see it as unless it has a predictive power it's not particularly useful then there are and this gets kind of into the philosophy of science i don't know how far you want to jump into this but then there's others on the phenomenological side to say these, these are elements of truth that we're trying to approach and we need to understand people's lived experience to sort of make generalizations so for example the idea of internalized colonialism the idea of subordinate groups measuring themselves against the yardstick of the dominant culture. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote eloquently about this, Souls of Black Folk. That theme is manifested through over many, many years in race scholarship. And it, I think it sensitizes wider publics to the specific uh, marginalization of particular groups where dominant white people, we don't, we don't have, it's almost like the way, you know, in the United States, we don't have to put U.S. at the end of our internet address. It's like, we're just, we're just the internet. You know, other countries have to have their, you know, so white people, white, white people have the privilege of not having, in a sense, that they're not racialized. And that insight that we have, which I think can help people be sensitized to the struggles of marginalized groups, came out of these qualitative traditions. And it's, it has, it's, it has a, a significant degree of truth, I think, to offer us, uh, even if it's not as maybe methodologically as rigorous as some of the larger um, quantitative studies and had lacking predictive power as well. Well, I would also add to that, based on my understanding of, of science and stuff, without having to go, you know, all Karl Popper, that, yeah. um, you know, this kind of qualitative research does give you predictive power, because if you're sensing power, if you're sensing trends throughout the 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 analysis or through the throughout the, all the the anecdotal data if you see commonality if you see cause effect if you see how you know sequences of events always seem to happen in the same way that gives you the exact predictive power you're looking for and all of this is kind of useless as a scientific endeavor if it doesn't give us something like that because otherwise you're looking at, otherwise it's kind of historical research rather than- I would, that's, you're, that's exactly what I was gonna say. There's a strong thrust of historicism at the heart of, of intersectional theory and critical race theory. Um, there's this idea that the category of race, the category of gender, these are deeply historical systems of meaning that help perpetuate structures of power and inequality. And, be, and, and there's this, I think, implicit underpinning, which I happen to reject, this implicit underpinning that there can't be, say, anything natural about any of these things, that certain kinds of racial attitudes can't speak to inherent tribalism in human nature. I have questions. I did a large anthropology survey, um, 301 anthropologists, which is a study that just came out in the journal Current Anthropology. And one of the questions we ask is, is tribalism you know, a, a key part of human nature? And although I didn't ask 
about intersectional because that's not a paradigm in anthropology the way it is in sociology. I do have the political radicals and the political radicals simply overwhelmingly reject the idea that we're naturally tribal. What, what, what a lot of people, yeah, what a, they don't, they're very uncomfortable. There's a kind of uh, what Leo is called biophobia at the heart of a lot of social scientists. And they, they reject kind of the idea that natural and sexual selection could have shaped human beings into have certain psychological characteristics. They're comfortable with physical characteristics, but they really want to stop at the, really at the neck in terms that of is, human being. Well, that's the problem right there. Mm -hmm. I mean, actually digging into this, if this is, if we're going to get to where does this topic go off the rails, that's where it goes off the rails. How many times have we talked, how many times have I said, folks out there who are listening to this, that interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary approaches to these problems of human behavior are essential to solving Absolutely. and understanding and predicting what, where we've come from, why we are the way that we are, why we behave the way that we do, and what we're going to go, how we're going to move forward into the future. If you don't understand cellular biology, if you don't understand neuroscience, if you don't factor in, uh, you know, all of medical biology into, you know, what we're doing, then you then you throw in evolutionary biology, which is kind of a controversial subject, but can speak to why certain traits and character things and all of that that make up who we are are the way that we are. All of these things go into this, but then you bring neuroscience into it, and then you bring sociology into it and psychology, where group psychology, you start looking at bigger picture things and how individuals act in groups, and that, of course, brings anthropology into it. This is a well-rounded approach to understanding human behavior. There, no one bucket is going to give you every answer. It's just impossible that it will, because these, no one of these things is what is determining how we are and who we are and why we are. That none of these things individually do it. Together, that is who we are. So. For any scientist <laughs> to think, and unfortunately, this is something I really rail on, for any scientist of any discipline to think their field is the only bucket that matters is, is exclusionary bias to, the, to, to a harmful degree. There's just no way it could, that they're going to be producing as good a science as they could if they were working in collaboration with other fields that are bringing more to the table than their bucket can. You know, yeah, my colleague Anthony Hayner and I we refer to it as integrated yeah. human science. Great. So, integrating the levels of biology, psychology, social psychology, sociology, and history, all of them in complicated ways to explain human behavior, which, as you said, uh, can't be reduced very often. Can't I mean, there may be certain questions, you know, if, if you're talking about some someone developing Huntington's disease, well, that question can be perfectly explained on the genetic level. Yes. You know what I mean? In terms yes. of inheriting from your parents. So it's not that in principle, every single aspect of the human experience embarks all the different levels, but a spirit, which I think you have, which I share with you, a spirit of recognizing that these levels are not turfs to defend, but they're tools to provide a kind of multidimensional understanding of the human experience. I, I think that's really important. And I think part of the rejection, the biophobia, which I've encountered as I've explored and carried out these large surveys, I think we have to step back. And I do, I, I want to make another point on the science side too for a minute, but I think when you have people so passionate, um, I think that left academics who identify with intersectionality uh, are deeply animated by 
core moral sensibilities. Um, and I, I mentioned in the last podcast that we had, I find Jonathan Haidt's work useful because he talks about feelings of fairness and feelings of care and compassion toward the vulnerable and strong suspicion toward authority. So those sensibilities animate these people so much. And when groups have these values, particularly when you get rewarded within a particular academic community for articulating these values, all of a sudden certain ideas that could challenge your moral and political commitments or potentially challenge them, get policed out. So if we, if we have a belief that there's nothing natural about gender or there's nothing natural about sexuality, nothing natural about race, if we believe that, well, then it means the sky's, you know, there's no, there's no limit to the kind of forms of social organization that we can construct. And if it's all reducible to power, then we can reorganize our society in a kind of utopian way eliminate these things because there's no natural obstacles. So it's not that I think every critical race theorist consciously says to themselves, I'm going to disagree with biology because it chokes against my desire to change the world. But I think that's what's essentially going on. It's this, this anxiety that if we open the door to the biological determinants of human behavior, I say determinants, influencers, because we're deeply cultural beings. And much of what intersectional sociology highlights is accurate. There are power relations in society. There are groups that have more resources. Those groups mobilize their resources in ways that dominate subordinate groups. There's a crucial insight that's accurate that I draw from in my own progressive background as a social scientist. Yet, when you bend the stick so far as to say everything reduces to power and there's simply no other variable than power, I think you're, you're losing a large part of the story. And, and one last point on this, I ask in my um, sociology survey whether people who make arguments, or, or I shouldn't say that, people who investigate questions of race or gender and bring in the category of biology must have a kind of hidden agenda to hold women down, right? We find that the intersectional sociologists tend to believe that. They think, well, yeah, if you're even asking the question about whether there could be, say, a biology in your occupational choices, then maybe there's an average difference between men and women and the kind of fields they gravitate to in part for biology. Socialization is very important, but maybe there's a biological aspect. If you're even asking that question, there must be a kind of agenda, patriarchal agenda. Many people on the left and many people in intersectional uh, community within sociology will tend to believe that and feel that there must be a kind of hidden agenda. But they're not treating scientific claims as scientific hypotheses. They're treating them as kind of moral statements. Right. And that's where we got into the ideologues versus the scientists or, or social scientists, because there is a very clear distinction. Once you have opened your mouth and said, you are not allowed to fill in the blank, whatever. Once now you're dictating behavior, you're not studying behavior, you're not trying to predict behavior, you're directly manipulating knowledge and behavior because you're trying to censor somebody for asking a question. There are no questions that are off limits. There's not, there is no knowledge that shouldn't be gotten and knowledge doesn't have an agenda, people do. So you can question somebody's agenda, and there's lots of people out there with lots of agendas. So I'm not saying that there are not patriarchal agendas out there, or people who, I mean, let's, if we're going to, you know, you brought height into it, and of course, the opposite of the left moral equation is the right moral equation, which is that, uh, meaning the right end, the, the, the conservative mindset or moral equation, which is hierarchical structures are good. Right. We want authority figures. We want people in charge. These are positives, not these are features, not bugs to that way of thinking those structural things 
There's nothing wrong with that. They don't look at that and go, oh, this is so horrible. They look at structures like that, structures of power and authority, and they say, this makes me feel comfortable. This makes me feel pleasure. I am happy that the world is structured and organized this way because it lends itself to a predictability of my life that I will be able to tell six months and a year from now where I'm going to be, how much I'm going to be making, what I'm going to be doing, et cetera. And I'm going to know that I'm going to drive down my street. And there's going to be nicely mowed green lawns on both sides. And there's going to be cars parked in the driveway where they're supposed to be, not on the street. And this is a way of looking at the world that is not evil or malicious or horrible. It's simply a different way of looking at it. And it has its own set of moral features that come with that and that's your interplay of left and right neither one of them are you know naturally evil or, or hitler-esque or something but this is the conflict between the left and the right this is what we run into every day of every minute of our existence so so that's that's that moral interplay but 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 when somebody on this end or somebody on this end is saying well, my system, my way of thinking, this way is the only way, and there cannot be any other way, and just basically negate half of, half of the people who exist in the world, because it roughly folds out 50-50 when you really settle everything down to it. This is why we have these spectrums, because this is how we sort. And, and when you sort these things this way, then, you, then you're just simply negating half the equation. And don't, people don't like to be negated. <laughs> You know, on either side, they don't like that. You know, and it's, yeah, I've been, you know, I've been doing my work um, in recent years, highlighting how progressive social scientists get blinded by certain moral sensibilities and they're closed to certain kind of hypotheses. Had there been in academia, you know, a, a kind of field where there's more right wing presence, I had I carried out a big survey of economists, thinking, oh great, I'm going to have a whole bunch, and it turns out there's virtually no conservative economists and even the libertarians make up only about 13% of the field, which is, which surprised me. So it's like, even here, this one field where you'd think there'd be a large right wing presence, but I should say, I mean, I agree with you. The notion, these are natural emotions, I think, aspects of personality that nudge people to gravitate to particular political identities and inherently good or bad necessarily. The question becomes, from a scientific point of view, we're trying to find the truth, though, and you're gonna you're gonna see different kinds of biases on the right. Another one of the values that Haidt unpacks on the right uh, is this value of loyalty toward your group, and there's a tendency to kind of on the right privilege your group as almost having a moral status that's greater than other groups. Um, you know, it's sort of like America love it or leave it in the extreme. That kind of sensibility oh, sure, that you see that on the kind right. Of thing. Yeah. Although I will, although I have to comment on the fact that I think. Um, I think height loses a little bit because I find that same level of group loyalty sensibility on the left, just okay. on different groups or different types of groups, perhaps. I mean, you'll find, for example, let's, you know, intersectionalists, you know, well, they're going to be exactly highly right. loyal to that group. And I think that is, I think that might be uh, more commentary on our inherent tribalism or you know, grouping than it is a, a moral factor. I think our morality springs from that trait of tribalism rather than the other way around. But that's just my opinion. No, I think you're right. I think there's certainly manifested. I think uh, an argument could be made that this is sort of the exception that proves the rule. You have this extreme tribal, even authoritarianism. Yeah. And it overlaps with some of the social justice, called social justice warrior culture on the left. But I just don't think that matches most I, mean, I think the reason why liberals 
gravitate to academia, this kind of setting where you're going to constantly be questioning. You're, you're not likely to, this is uh, an unusual part of the spectrum, I think, on the left. Uh, we don't need to quibble about that. Um, but in terms, yeah, but in terms of Haidt's work, the only point I was going to make there on the right is you could get, you could get biases that could undermine science on the right. Like, yes. let, let's, I've never done a study like this, but if we have large number of right-wing historians and we ask whether, say, the bombs were necessary in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, oh, absolutely, because whatever America does is right, and they might read the historical record through the lens of their group solidarity for the rightness of America. And getting at the truth, by the way, of complicated historical questions like that is very difficult anyway. And what I find in my work is that the tugs of your moral sensibilities and your group identities make it very messy. Social science is very, very messy. So it's called a soft science, I think, for a reason. Yeah, um, yeah, I, yeah. I don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I don't bend the stick like some colleagues do where they start to just give up on it being scientific. I just think the work is harder and I see my own effort to sort of understand ourselves as both scientists and moral agents as a way to sort of do better science. That's sort of the position that I, that I articulate in my work. So. Fair enough. And, uh, and definitely agreed. And, and yeah, there, these biases can exist on both ends and you can, and it's a lens, you know, it's a, it's a way of framing our experiences. It's a way of framing the otherwise completely random chaotic series of events that we call life. I mean, you know, it, you, you try to frame this thing in some way that makes sense to people and, and different people are going to have different takes on it because they have different approaches. I mean, you're reminding me of the basic point I wanted to make earlier when I said it's probably going to be too simplistic, my take on intersectionality yeah. for many. Um, it's just, this is what we do. One of the central, you know, really the, arguably the central focus of sociology is to, sort, to explore what is called the consequence of difference, how people in different locations have different life chances. It's not the only thing we do, but it's a huge part of what we do. So most elementary data you would take, Chris, in like an introduction to sociology or social problems class, you're going to say, oh, look, the average household income for whites will say 54,000, right? The average for blacks will be 34, and maybe Hispanics will be 38. And then you're going to look at health, health outcomes, so the rates of diabetes. You're going to see studies on how if you go into a hospital as an African-American person, even with health insurance, there's going to be these, and this is where the qualitative research can come in. What are these micro processes where people aren't given the kind, same kind of care, they're not respected as well? You know, so there's a lot of valuable work that's done showing how race, gender, disability, uh, sexual orientation, there's increasingly a lot being put now on so-called fat studies, you know, the, the feelings of body shaming and so on. So all of these different kinds of axes create lived experiences that, that aren't just additive, that have to take on a kind of life of their own. And if you're a a moral community, which I think sociologists are, concerned about inequality. We want a world where there's less of it. You know, we want a world where there's more equality, where resources are distributed more equally. Well, then you're naturally going to gravitate to those kinds of questions. So I, again, I see the core of intersectionality to be very valuable. It's a useful concept to sort of describe how intersecting axes of identity can confer relatively different access to socially valued resources. Unfortunately, even though I sympathize with the values on the left, there are certain sectors of it that are, are inclined to deeply moralize this, where, where there are people who raise hypotheses that are seen to in any way work against the interests of social equality, will get shamed and excluded from public discourse. I'm sure you've heard of cases of speakers on the right, like Charles Murray or uh, other people, by the way, I happen to find toxic, like Milo or, or oh, Ann Coulter. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. I find them toxic, but I strongly disagree with shouting them out and having massive protests where you don't let them speak. It's, it's illiberal, runs fundamentally against open dialogue that we should be communicating in colleges and universities. It's a space where that 
needs to be strongly and vigorously, I think, defended by universities. So, um, and that's the problem. When, you, when you're so sure about your moral values and you have communities that reinforce it and you get kudos, really, from your community when you silence these voices that you see as sort of inherently dangerous to the interests of your group and, and the well-being of these particular groups, um, it, it creates the kinds of problems that we're seeing all around university campuses. Yeah, exactly. And, and those problems will probably... Uh, I, I was I, actually I don't know that they're going to get better, be, get worse before they get better. We're seeing the pendulum swing already. You know, comedy is always the uh, forerunner of social change. Uh, it's a marker you can follow, and comedy is already starting to reject, you know, the extremism that is that that was coming out of the left, that was pushing people out of careers, out of social positions of standing, out of, you know, privilege or whatever. Some rightly so. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, Harvey Weinstein needed to go down. Oh, um, but, I, you know, yeah, I mean, that's just crazy. <laughs> criminal, obviously, criminals need to be prosecuted for criminal activity. There's never an exception to that rule. Um, but, you know, the social stigma, stigmatizi stigmatizing of celebrities or somebody who says the wrong thing and this getting into academia where academics have been have lost their jobs or pushes have been made to get people out because of a political stance or a sociological stance or a gender stance or whatever, you know, we really need to differentiate criminal behavior from an opinion you disagree with. And this is, these are two wildly different things, you know. You um, reminded me, I don't remember the exact statement that Matt Damon made. Do you remember that a couple years ago? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He said they were, yeah. Something about like there's a, exactly. Something like there's a difference between patting someone on the butt maybe in rape or something like that yeah, or something, something that effect it, it just I, I, I for just a tidal wave yeah tidal wave uh and there That's are critics right. like sam harris and others that point out that it's kind of they call it a kind of mob behavior yes um where these kind of key to, of course it's immoral behavior that shouldn't be done but in terms of how society responds right. um I, I think a case could be made that there is a kind of mob reaction to some of these things and kind exactly. of panic um an ability to make fine distinctions that's right. And, and, and extremism is, you know, is if you're gonna, if you, if you need a simple gauge for this or a simple way to think about, you know, extremism or nuance, then simply think about it this way. The farther out you, that you get on these spectrums, the more extreme you're getting, the more black and white things get. Right. Right. And the nuance is in the middle, right? That's where all the spectrums of nuance are out on the edges. It's just black and white <laughs> and you can revel in your purity but don't kid yourself that that's a reflection of the real world because it's not there are no real situations anywhere that are just purely black or white nothing nothing yeah and this all. this makes me think of like um i don't know if you want to nudge toward this but because I, I admit when you had reached out to me about talking about this topic i was curious about some of the overlaps with cult behavior within scientology but within kind of left movements you going back to this idea that a lot of these ideas aren't meant to even be testable they're just sort of moral statements that confer a certain status within your group and i had mentioned white supremacy as one of them even yeah. though there's a huge chunk of truth to white supremacy the way it's used in this all pervasive way and then you try to sort of figure out how to test it whether we've made advances i mean one of the one of the sort of uncomfortable facts for for left academics is the success of the asian population and, and I plead guilty of this myself, Chris. When I used to teach social problems, 
I used to avoid talking about Asians. And then if I had to talk about them, I would say, well, there's a lot of diversity and there's still a lot of poor, depending who we're talking about. So I used to home in on specifically those Asian subpopulations, you know, like the Hmong that might be doing worse or something like that. You see what I'm saying? So um, when you have an overarching black and white view, like you said, that really isn't meant to be an empirically contested thing. It makes me think some of the sort of claims by Scientology, some of the sort of deepest arguments made at the highest levels are like that. They're kind of sacred beliefs. And, and there have been critics, uh, the famous group there that uh, did those um, unusual studies like the dog park, James Lindsay, oh, Peter yeah. Bogosian. Uh, Bogosian, Peter Bogosian. Yeah, Bogosian, and right. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay, yeah. Yeah, they have a, they've been talking a lot about intersectionality as a religion. Yes. And, and there's, there's no question that there's elements of that because, you, again, you have these people passionate about social justice, concerned about the lived experience of vulnerable groups, wanting a world where resources are distributed more equally, and strongly policing claims that could in any way naturalize or, or, or even be potentially uh, roadblocks to bringing about the kind of change that they want. Um, so you see that here in terms of the kind of studies they were able to get published. Um, as long as those studies intersected, that's no pun intended, with the core, <laughs> with the core values of the group. You know what I mean? That dominant, yep. groups, that dominant groups are immoral, need to be oh, challenged. They had a, didn't they write a paper about how, how guys, how, how, how white men should, or straight white, straight men need to, um, need to get it with a dildo or something so that yeah. they can truly understand the gay experience and and until they they do that, and and this was a this was posed not as a joke, not as a meme, not as a not as a funny little paper to pass around in in the in the hallway. This was a a, a presented to a scientific journal that what what presented itself as a scientific journal, as a scientific paper using deep academic language, to <laughs> to describe this whole thing that I basically just said. Uh, and it had to do with dog parks or something. And well, the dog um, parks was a different one, but yeah, oh, there was dog parks. Was, yes. Yeah, no, numerous yeah. papers like that. Yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. And as long as it reflected the values of the reviewer, uh, because again, it's it's there. Again, I, I I have to stress this. I consider this a very small component. If you listen to some right wing voices like a Ben Shapiro or, or people, they think that this is just contemporary sociology. And in, right. in defense of my field, by the way, they, I believe they could not get a single paper in a sociology journal. So I, I feel proud about that. Um, yes. But yeah, so. Yeah, so, they, were, they were publishing in the specific journals that were taking on trans, queer, LGBT, mostly, uh, you know, social justice type stuff. And, and that's why I say presenting themselves as a, magazine or publication of science but in fact you know when you're taking papers like that and the peer review consists of you know you're you're not enough of an ideologue uh, along my lines that's not that's not what science is you know and and all of us who really are understand science for for what it actually is trying to do will be the first to tell you that it is and you're i'm glad you brought that up about shapiro and the and the right-wing pundits because they do paint with too broad a brush they do mm -hmm. have an agenda i mean you're talking about somebody with an agenda there are some folks with an agenda you know and they and they want to paint all of this with this brush brush of of pseudoscience and anything coming out of academia is horrible and awful and that just that's just simply just as black and white nonsense as, as some of the extremist stuff you see coming there, out of the There's way. lots of extremely good work in sociology 
demonstrating yeah. the lived experience of marginalized groups, the mechanism through which their oppression is perpetuated, how they internalize feelings of, of colonialization, subordination, uh, and all of that's very important. I think this, even the social justice part of it's important. I think it's crucial to the history of my field. I've always been at the intersection of academia and, and social change. And, you know, sociologists are part of kind of opinion part of opinion leaders trying to mobilize certain cultural attitudes to bring about progressive change in society. All of that's very, very good when it morphs to this extreme variant, which people on the right are going to say characterizes the whole field. The data of my actual academic survey suggests about a quarter of the field, at most a third, but generally about a quarter of the field adheres to these very, well, I guess one could say, strident views that police out empirical claims that are that run against it. I, I could point to a few examples if you're curious, or we could do it later. But it well, be I, I, here's my first question, actually, yeah. when you mention that, because this is the first time that anybody from within the field has given me a number in terms of what are we looking at with this? Because I've been very, very curious about that, and I'm actually glad you brought that up. The reason I'm glad you brought it up because it's an alarming number to me. 25% is a Still lot. Substantial. One out of four is a substantial number. Too many, I think. I look at, you know, when extremism goes beyond, and, and by extremism, I mean this black and white thing and all the stuff we've been talking about, if, if that's what we're talking about with this, with this group of people. You know, I've looked at extremism as a, the, certainly no more than one percentage point and, and really significantly less than that if you start looking at very large populations. Um, and the, and so in academia, we're talking about thousands of people, tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I mean, I, what was the number? That seems so low. Was it? I'm thinking it was five thousand expected sociologists in the country. I think that can't be right. Um, here I am, a sociologist me. without without the good numbers in front of me. But yeah, yeah so you're you're still talking a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, talking about a lot there. of people there. Yeah, and, and I can't say necessarily all sociologists though, who who use intersectionality as a paradigm are you know, engaged in such extraordinary policing. No, this is, we're, we're having to paint with a broad brush here. Again, we don't have quantitative analysis of this. So we're, we're sort of guesstimating and ballparking here. And please, mm -hmm. you know, let's everybody understand that. Um, I just thought, wow, that's a pretty high spitball figure, you know, a quarter. Mm -hmm. And so my question, actually, the first question I had is, what can the other three quarters do? Is this recognized as a problem within the field and if it is, can something be done about it other than what, you know, kind of the arguing at the at the corner, you know, bar or whatever after work? I mean, is there anything else that can be done to to bring some some sense to this? Because because uh, I have a real chip on my shoulder with people who call themselves scientists, even the soft scientists who engage in methodology that is simply extremism under a under a scientific coat, you know. No, I agree with you. Uh, I see my own work as a kind of kill them with kindness kind of approach. First of all, I come out of it and I share the values fundamentally. And although in recent years trying to get tenure at, at Seton Hall, I've been more of a paper activist than anything else, or an armchair activist, I guess they say. Um, for many, many years, I was deeply involved in, in labor organizing, community organizing, cross-border organizing. So I, I think that gives me, in a sense, a kind of privileged access to what's really going on because I've been there and done that kind of thing. So I, I nudge it in the kindest possible way to say, guys and gals, look at what we believe. You know, are, is it really reasonable to say, and I think I brought this up in our first uh, podcast together, Chris, like this idea, one of the questions that I ask in the survey 
is whether um, it's plausible, so I don't even ask whether it's true, that political efforts to increase women's representation in STEM, although desirable, STEM fields like science, technology, and mathematics, um, you know, may not lead to equality in part because of a, a component that could connect to biology. Right. And so this is where my field is, again, going back to the biophobia, because there's such a concern about bringing about social change and nothing can be natural. All these things are inherently political and reducible to power. Um, we, literally, this is I, I'm disturbed by this statistic. Three uh, percent of intersectional sociologists find that even plausible. So, you know, uh, that's and 89 wow. percent found it outright implausible. Right. So uh, not even, we're not talking true here. We're just saying it's, it's not even plausible that there can be even a, any biological component. And there have been other smaller examples of this. There was a sociologist in uh, 2000 who, who published in our top journal in the field, uh, Richard Udry, who actually did this kind of rare gem, a longitudinal study where they were able to get, um, believe it or not, samples, embryonic samples of the amount of testosterone in the womb of 350 women, and then actually was able to give them surveys when they were when these women were 27 30 years old so the the children that are born 30 years later they're getting surveyed and what udrich found was that the prenatal testosterone and, and another kind of binding protein i remember i'm forgetting the name correlated with the likelihood that they ended up having more masculine oriented interests in the field more masculine oriented behaviors and identities and there's a whole bunch of things like a bem sexual inventory, a whole bunch of different kinds of uh, tools that we can use in social science to point at masculinity and femininity. Well, it created like a furor. There was an outrage that shouldn't have got published in this top journal. So I'm just giving you an example of there's a rear guard kind of biosociology trying to raise, well, at the very least one would say, even if you deeply committed to social justice, it shouldn't lead you to the point of view, it's, it's not plausible. It shouldn't have been published. Uh, there's, in my own work, asking questions like this without even having an agenda. My only agenda is to sort of figure out what people believe. And I find again and again, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, the best predictor of where a social scientist stands on a controversy in their field is their self-identified political orientation. So it's even bigger than gender most of the time. So it's like, you know, someone's politics, you kind of know what they're going to believe. And instead of just calling that out and saying, oh, you're biased, I, I, I use this social intuitionism from Jonathan Haidt to try to sort of explain what's going on on the level of emotion that makes certain ideas more or less congenial to you. Right. So it's all about, and you said, what could be done for the people that are not part of this 25%? Well, it's just understanding ourselves as a moral community. What are the motivations that animate us? What are the emotions that animate us? If we become conscious of that, less inclined to sort of demonize other people who might raise an alternative hypothesis, then we can actually begin to do better work that gets us closer to the truth. At least that's the hope. And, and, and in terms of comments, I am telling you, I remember I literally get comments like you're a white supremacist. Um, one, one person said, my job as a white person is to shut the fuck up in their comment. Right. Right. You know, so I'm not, I'm like, yeah, that, that, that ain't science. Shutting the fuck up go. ain't science, folks. You know, right. I mean, you can call yourself whatever you want, but that ain't science. Um, I can't help but think back to some of the fads that have occurred in psychology and other sciences in the past that lived, that seemed at the time to be burning bright and be the future of the field, only to die a horrible and painful and very <laughs> necessary death when more and more and more research just kept flooding the field. And I, and I for example, behaviorism. 
uh, you know, in 19, what was that, 40s and 50s, BF Skinner boxes and, you know, sticking his own daughter in one of those things. I mean, it was, it was just horrifying what the behavioralists believed. They were under the impression that if you, that their, their whole concept was, give me a child and within a few, if I can control all the factors of his environment, then within a few years, I will give you whatever you want that person to be. I can mold them into that. And we, uh, they learned pretty quickly that that was absolute bunk and that there is a lot more going on with why people behave the way they do than environmental epigenetics or, or they weren't even getting into epigenetics. They were just talking strictly about behavior modification. And you can get a certain distance with behavior modification, but you are not going to control the thoughts and feelings and, and behavior patterns of every single human being with behavioralism alone. And that looked to be, at the time, Skinner was recognized as this like genius researcher, and there were these other people involved in this, and everybody thought this was going to be the next big thing, and we were going to have a brave new world because of behavioralism. And, and then, of course, we did not. And like I said, it died the death it deserved. It was total bunk pseudoscience. And I'm getting, I, the, I wanted to just kind of throw this out there because I, I, I sometimes get a little depressed about the state of people sometimes. Um, but science, you know, the great thing about it, and I wanted to get your feedback on this, the great thing about science is that it continues on regardless of what one or two or three or a hundred people are saying. Science is something that happens all over the world now. You know, everybody, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people contributing to it. So these fads, these things that pop up, and I don't mean to reduce all of this valid field of intersectionality that we have been discussing and talking about the pros and valid points of it. I'm not reducing it all to a fad. The extremist part of it, the ideologues that, that, that usurp these sciences and use them to forward political agendas or social control agendas, you could say, those are the things that are the fads. Those are the things that come and they go and they come and they go and the pendulum swings this way mm -hmm. and then the pendulum swings this way. And if you want to walk back in history, you can see this repeated over and over and over again. What do you think about everything I just said? I, I thought it was accurate. And I think what we do in critical social science is we actually, part of our science is to examine what you just said. So an interesting empirical question, believe it or not, is how social actors in particular moments in history control and influence both science and public discourse. So this is the, this is the part of me that's congenial with, or, or you know, I find I find some critical race ideas a congenial to me because yeah, you're attentive to relationships of power in society. You show how idea systems, which include science, can be influenced and perverted by those kinds of interests, right? But again, I have to go back to your point. Over time. The idea would be, if we think of science instead of some tool of oppression, but we think of it as just a way of making claims that requires you to back it up. That you can't just say you can't just say something. <laughs> you know, exactly. you have to, you, ha you have to provide evidence, right? And then yeah. other people have to be brought invited into the conversation. There's never like a this is sacred point A. That's never part, that should never be it. You know, right. um, and so that's why sacred science is. A cult manifestation. <laughs> right. Right. No, no, there's no, no question about it. And, and a lot of the, many of the elements, to the extent I'm familiar with cult behavior, do appear in this more extreme version. You, know, you have sacred beliefs. You have strong policing of people's claims. Right. Uh, there's a sort of hierarchical. People get status to the extent that they articulate the central tenets really effectively. Yeah. Yep. Um, you know, uh, I don't know if they have charismatic leaders. Um, 
I mean, they certainly point to certain figures within the field as uh, being exemplars. But that might be one element. Uh, they certainly have outgrouping, though. People that oh, are yeah. conscious yeah, or unconscious shunning. white supremacists, right? Shunning people Fancy out of the moral community. culture, they call it now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so lots of the elements, and 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 Bergashian and Lindsay and Pluckrose talk about this as like intersectionality is a religion, and I think they're they're onto something there. And in my paper, uh, with my colleague, I think that I think the paper Lindsay wrote was was social justice activism or social justice warriors is a religion. Okay. I think Fair that enough. was the paper that he wrote about it that okay. I remember reading. And so intersectionality, of course, or these extreme activist elements of it would be included in what he was talking about. I don't think Pluck, I don't think Lindsay was claiming that this subject of intersectionality itself, I think he would take right. care You're absolutely to differentiate right. that. Yep. And that goes back to our initial point, that there's yeah. a valid scientific lens to highlight the lived experience of marginalized groups, those those marginalized statuses aren't just additive they have a qualitative uniqueness the only way to get at that if you're not someone who lives it is to sort of engage through story and narrative try to understand a posture of sympathy uh, many many people with different political sensibilities aren't interested in doing that so they'll, they'll tend to dismiss they'll throw the baby out with the bathwater, or they'll take the most extreme elements and characterize the whole intersectional community that way and i don't think that's yeah, fair exactly. on the other side of it um, but i think we agree more than we disagree on these things uh, yeah, I think, uh, I think we're tracking here too. This has been interesting. I'm going to move toward wrapping this up now, but um, okay. I, I think we've talked. I think we've covered some good ground. I hope that you know everybody's been able to stick with this and get where we're, we're trying to go. This is really just kind of you know commentary and and some pros and cons, uh, you know, analysis of of this topic that I wanted to kind of go here with. And I think we've also covered some broader topics that I thought we, I didn't know we were going to get into, but I think are just as, as valuable and important. And, you know, the multidisciplinary approach and, and how science is affected by uh, sloppy science and how it can, how it has to get itself back on the rails. And it, and it consistently does. That's the great thing about our scientific method is there's, human beings are doing it. So guess what? It's gonna be fucked up sometime. No, absolutely. You know? You're absolutely right. And I would I would say not just human nature screwing it up, but I have to say the existing distribution of power and resources in society creates a skewing effect. I mean, if we think about what we're not doing, and I mentioned this in the last podcast, what we're not doing about climate change. I mean, it's like the the affront to powerful interests that would be required, and the way we organize our economy is so extreme that powerful interests have no interest in it. And so, you know, those countries where that leave the biggest ecological footprint tend to be the ones that deny the impact, uh, you know, fossil fuel burning and so on. So a lot of the most important issues we don't address in society because of those distributions of power. And to the extent that critical sociology highlights that, it's doing a service. It's a different kind of scientific question, right, than other kinds of scientific questions. Uh, but it's still, it has, I think, vital importance politically and socially. So ironically, despite my staunch discomfort, even opposition to identity politics, both on the left and right, um, the methodology of attending to power is central to the work that I do in the way I think as a critical sociologist. It's just not everything can be fit into that, though. You don't exactly. have to look, you know, I mean, not every question reduces to that. There can be, like you said, these multidisciplinary, I like the word integrated. An integrated approach to science recognizes all these different levels can be playing a role, and we need to keep an open mind to all of those things. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, I, I and I only speak from the personal experience of trying to break down and understand human behavior. Uh, you know, simple things like that. And, right. Yeah. And my studies over the last six years have gone from you know the studying extremist groups and high control groups and authoritarian thought reform 
to uh, you know to to okay what 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 causes us to do things and that led to critical thinking which led to mental mechanisms and 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 biological systems and then of course neurology which I'm knee deep neck deep in now um, to understand emotion and understand thinking processes and because because I'm always looking deeper I'm always looking deeper and not necessarily smaller that was a lesson I had to learn along the way it's not always just about the neurons because you know what affects the neurons well what happens outside the body affects what goes on in here exactly. just as much as what's going on in the body and so once you start realizing that and you start getting that integrated picture then you just don't have any choice but to see that it's complicated no matter what approach you're taking absolutely and then, and then you have to the historical lens comes in too deep historical lens as evolutionary theorists frame it because we had to survive tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of generations surviving and reproducing, that's bound to have selected for certain tendencies of human nature that are likely to at least in part be universal. So you have these multifaceted picture, right? Where, yes, we're deeply cultural, we're subject to different ecological, social, and historical contexts that make our behavior very profoundly based on context. And yet at the same time, we're a species. So we're likely to have certain universal aspects, particularly when it comes to core aspects of our sense of say our sexuality or you know there's a whole there's a whole litany of things uh cultural universals that have been write, written about as well that are controversial in social science but strike me as highly plausible so it's a it's a rich and interesting picture exactly and a, and a, and, a, and a lot of fun to talk about and study and, and look into and i always encourage people out there to do it you know if you've got the time and interest um you know understanding your fellow human being is a fascinating research so uh, mark Thanks for coming on. Oh, and giving it me was time. wonderful. No, I, I loved it. And I always enjoy talking with you. And I, anytime you want me to come back, I'm more than welcome. Awesome, man. I am positive we are going to do this again. All right. Uh, I hope so. Yeah. So many topics, so many things we have to talk about. Um, and I, I'm, I, I really like building up my little, you know, my little cater, my little army of people that I can call upon to, to, to come and talk about certain things, you know, and, and I think it's when great. it comes to sociology, you're my, you're my guy right now. And this well, is awesome, I appreciate so. that. I'm glad to be one of them. And you're obviously widely respected with a wide network of people. And so I, I enjoy your podcast all the time. So awesome, man. All okay, right. Thank folks, you, Chris. Any questions, comments, feedback? Uh, I'm sure you will have plenty. And thanks for sticking out through the whole show all the way to the end here. Really appreciate your viewership. Uh, leave your questions and comments in the comment section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And if you find, of course, if you find my podcast entertaining, informative, and educational, and I hope you do, then consider joining me on Patreon because that is what keeps these lights on, keeps this camera going, and keeps my body moving so I can provide these podcasts for you. All right, guys. See you next week. Bye-bye.